0: Father, we do pray as we come to your word, teach us your ways, uh, where there's things that we need to get right, we pray that we'll do that. If there's things we need to rejoice in, we pray we'd do that and help us to give thanks for what you've given us and use the things you've given us for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a farmer, okay, a poor farmer and his wife, and they had a, a cow, uh, but uh they were so poor they couldn't get the cow serviced one year uh, by the bull. So uh, a miracle happened and the cow was pregnant and had two calves. Okay, one white one and one red one. Does that make them identical twins? No, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> a red calf and a white calf. And uh, uh, the wife said, well... Well, we're Christians, we should, God's blessed us, we should, uh, we should keep one for ourselves and give one to the Lord. And if I, that's a great idea, love. That's a great idea. Uh, she said, well, which one should we give to the Lord? The red one or the white one? And she said, oh no, he said, uh, we can figure it out later. Don't worry about it for now. We'll find out later. They went off to market to sell the two cows for money. And, uh, on the way, the red one died. And, uh, The wife said, oh, that's a shame. We're going to have to go without. He said, no, 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 it was the Lord's one that died. Uh, We'll be right. (laughs) Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones told that story. He remarked, isn't it interesting how it's always the Lord's portion that suffers? But anyway, money and church. We had to get there eventually. Uh, We've been chipping away at the topic of money for the last five weeks and it's proven to be uh, really interesting, fascinating, enormous and complex issue. Uh, we've seen something of the goodness of money, the power that it has, its versatility, the good it can be, uh, in God's purposes, how in godly hands, uh, it does wonders. But we've also seen the huge dangers that money poses, how, how it can make us forget God, how it can, it's, it, well, the love of it is the root of all kinds of evil. Uh, how, how it gives us false assurances that we're okay and we'll be safe. If we if we just have enough, then we'll be right. How it makes us arrogant. How, even more dangerously, how is the great idol that the New Testament warns over and over again about. Jesus put it so starkly, you cannot serve, you cannot serve both God and money. Here is the contrast, here is the reality, here's the challenge that's laid before us. Is God our God? Is he the one that we will live for and serve and love and worship with all of our heart, with all of our sign, with all of our mind and with all of our strength and perhaps naughtily with all of our wallets? Or is it our wealth and the stuff that abides that we will worship? And we've been called by God, as we've seen in the last three weeks, to three extraordinary principles that we need uh, to think through as we uh, think how are we going to serve God with our wealth? the three principles being unwavering faithfulness to our responsibilities. There are things that we need to do with our money. Unbounding and sacrificial generosity for the good of others, particularly for their salvation, and then incredible wisdom as we seek to manage these challenges. Faithfulness, generosity and wisdom. The three characteristics that God calls on us to exercise with our hip pockets and our bank balances they will control what we spend and what we give and, and what we give to, what causes we support. Well, today we're getting down to brass tacks and dealing with one very practical question. I thought about skipping this when I put the sermon series together a year ago, uh, thinking through what we might come. I thought, ah, no one's going to be interested in that. Uh, and, uh, you yeah, but, uh, well, it came up in question time last week and it's a very contentious issue around different churches and I think, you know... Different members of church think differently about each other on this. And that is that, is there a right amount of money to put in the church plate? Is there a right amount to give to church? In particular, the, the question raised last week was about the practice of tithing. Tithing, is tithing right? Now, who's heard of that term, tithing? Okay, Anyone not heard of tithing? Okay, that'd be interesting. Okay, well, you've all heard the term then, okay. Well, what's tithing? What, what does it mean? What is a tithe? What's the technical thing? Well, I tell you, it means a tenth. That's 10% giving a tenth. Add up your total income, pre-tax, divided by 10. Is that the right amount that God wants you to put in the plate or to direct debit if you happen to do that? Uh, one of the most popular passages for Pentecostal preachers Uh, is Malachi chapter 3 from verse 8. It's the second last chapter of the Old Testament and the whole issue of tithing comes out. Here He says Malachi chapter 3 and you'll hear this sermon regularly. Will a mere model rob God? Yet you rob me, says the Lord. But you ask, how are we robbing you, God? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before its right, says the Lord Almighty. Then the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Hear that? You know? Give 10% and you're going to prosper and abandon all things. You give 10% to church because, of course, we're the storehouse of God. Uh, give that money and uh, and you'll get rich yourself. You will abound and prosper, but you hold back your 10%, you thief. You're stealing from God uh, and you're only going to be cursed. Now, I've heard that several times. Uh, interesting. Uh, is it really that simple? No, of course it's not. So let's go and work it out. Should we or shouldn't we tithe to church? Well where does the idea of tithing come from? Well the first mention of tithing in the Bible uh, from even before the creation of Israel was the patriarch Abraham and we had that third reading from Hebrews in the New Testament but it's talking about something that happened way back at the start of the Bible in Genesis chapter 14 and it's a ripping story, a true story. Uh, and it would make an awesome Hollywood blockbuster if we uh, turn it into a movie. Uh, Genesis 14, there's this huge pitched battle. Four kings and their armies go to war against five kings and their armies. And the five kings are expected to win, but the four kings win. And uh, as the victors, they take the spoils of war, which included capturing a fellow called Lot and his wife and children and their possessions. Now, Lot happens to be Abraham, the patriarch of Israel's nephew. And Abraham finds out this has happened, someone tells him, and he thinks, what are we going to do? We've got to rescue Lot. Uh, and so he goes, you know what? I've got 318 men with me. Let's go take on five standing, four standing armies uh, and rescue him. And so he takes his 318 men, he attacks the four kings, and they win. And then they they absolutely rout this hardened military which has just come back from conquest. And he saves Lot and his family and all the possessions. But then, just as he's coming back from the battle, they're all happy and celebrating, this dude turns up called Melchizedek. Um, Melchizedek just comes out of nowhere. He's got no background. He's not related. He's, He's got no genealogy. There's no reason he should have been there, uh, his name means King of Righteousness. He's the King of Righteousness. That's his, what his name means. And he's the king of a place called Salem, which is, uh, in English, peace. So he's the King of Righteousness and he's the King of Peace. Who does that sound like? King of Righteousness? King. It sounds a bit like Jesus. Well, I'm not saying it might be, but anyway, here's this guy, Melchizedek. Uh, the King of Righteousness, King of Peace. And no one knows where he comes from. He just shows up and he comes up to Abraham and he says, I've got all this food and wine and I want to give it to you. You look like really, you're really tired and I'm going to pray for you. Let's do that now. Dear God, please bless Abraham. Uh, and and Abraham says, what, what, what's going on here? Uh, and he's so thankful. Uh, you know, He and his men have been fed and prayed for and blessed that he goes, you know what? We're going to give 10% of everything we've got to this man. He ties his possessions to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. And then that sets the precedent which is enshrined in God's law to Israel who are Abraham's descendants. And so years later, having rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, having formed them as a nation, God gives them a law by which they are to govern their nation, the law of Moses. And the law included a whole series of statutes and ordinances, uh, including the Ten Commandments, you know, have no other gods, do not murder, and all those kind of things. Uh, has property laws and dispute resolution laws. It's got laws about ownership and laws about marriage and sex. It's got laws about how to deal with criminals and how to get off murder or to be convicted of murder. It's got, uh, but by far the largest portion of the law is in relation to the right worship of God. It includes all the things about animal sacrifices for your sins and and the priesthood, and the temple, and, and all those kind of things, the priests. And then it has these, in, in that part, these commands about tithing. But what's fascinating to me is how little read or understood the whole tithing process was. Now, I've found it fascinating just researching the last few weeks, because there weren't one, but three tithes. There you go. So if you think 10th and was the standard, well, actually, we've got some thinking to do. The first tithe, which is the the normal one we refer to, is the the first tenth uh, we read about it in Leviticus twenty-seven, verse thirty. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Because it was an ag- agrarian community, and so what you had to do, if you are, you know, a shepherd. Go through your flock, count off ten. That tenth one goes to God. The next tenth one that goes to God. If you're a, you know farming an orchard or a vineyard, I don't know if you do it by bunches of grapes or just individual grapes. Probably the bunches is as easy, uh, or you know, or maybe even easier than that is all the all the bunches on the tenth vine. But anyway, uh, or your orange tree, pick off every tenth fruit goes to God. And it turns out in Numbers chapter eighteen. Uh, what this explicitly goes towards, okay, why this 10%, At Numbers 18, it turns out that it's to support the Levites. Uh, now, the Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. The nation of Israel had t- 12 gr- family groups based around the sons of Jacob, okay, and one of the sons was Levi and so his descendants were to get a tenth of all the stuff that everyone else produced. And that was because they had no ownership. They couldn't have personal property for themselves. They couldn't work a normal job. They were given a particular job, which was to be the priests for Israel. You were born into the profession. You didn't, you know, go to more college because you wanted to. (laughs) You were born as a Levite, and you thought, "Gotta be a priest, all right." And you might be a bad one or a good one, but that's what you were. Uh, And they didn't have any ownership. And to support them, there was an involuntary tax. Uh, to support this huge number of people a twelfth of the nation supported by the rest of them by this 10% tax now they themselves were taxed on that tithe themselves as they received a sh- you know the tenth sheep for the year they had to give that one back to the the pool as well so they weren't exempt from the tax but did you notice in the reading in Leviticus 27 if you as the farmer wanted to keep the sheep or the grain or the orange or the bunch of grapes to yourself, you could do that. You could turn it into money. Uh, but if you did want to pay as money rather than as the animal or the fruit, you had to add 20% to the value. And so if your tithe was going to be money, it wasn't 10%, it was 12%. Okay, that's a start. But then you get to Deuteronomy chapter 14 and it turns out there's a second tithe, a second tenth. It's still part of the worship of God, uh, and it's really interesting because, as we read it, or if you want to read it yourself, Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. Listen to who ends up with this stuff. Okay, you've got to give you've got to give ten or twelve percent to the priests, and another ten percent. Be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain, new wine, and olive oil and the firstborn of your herds and the flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. And then you come down to verse 26. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Who gets the proceeds of your, of your tithe in that one? You do. You are forced by God to f- have a party. to eat 10% of your product uh, at a feast at Jerusalem, as it turns out, it will be later on. Uh, In other words, the faithful Israel had to set aside the second 10% of their produce specifically to participate in religious festivals so they could go and celebrate in Jerusalem things like the Passover and the Feast of Weeks and the Day of Atonement. And they had to stock up because it was a long trip. Okay, And uh, they had to blow the lot in these huge feasts in joy and thanksgiving for what God had done for them, uh, it's a little bit like Christmas for us. You know, you, you have a Christmas party, and it's supposed to be about Jesus coming, and that's all exciting. And what do you do? You blow the year's income, right? <laughs> kind of thing. It's exactly like that. I was thinking about it. it. has a work in church? It's kind of like a church house party. You, you you pay to go away for a weekend, and and that's what it is. You're there worshiping God, and, pray and, and so it's a right and proper thing to do. So next time we have a church house party, you got to come. Save up for it, okay? <laughs> Party! It's always a party. That's why it's called a house party, because we listen to house music. Do, do, do. No, jump everybody, jump. No, anyway, that's probably not house. Anyway. Um I, I I don't know. I'm not that cool. Anyway, I think house is probably par se now, is that right? You're young. You never even heard of house. Must have been back in the eighties and nineties or something. Anyway, a lot of electronic music and uh, LSD and stuff. But anyway. Uh, Anyway, so 10 to 12% to the priests. 10% you had to go to the religious vessels, and you had to eat it all. <laughs> but then there's a third tithe. Again, in Deuteronomy 14, but a few verses later on in verse 28. At the end of every three years, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your own towns so that the Levites who have no allotment or inheritance of their own as well as the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied. And so the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So every third year, the Old Testament faithful Israelite had to cough up another 10%. So that is out at 3.3% over three years, specifically for feeding the poor okay, because you you didn't take it to the temple and give it to the priests you you didn't go to Jerusalem and eat it, you just you put it in a storehouse and people could come and feast and eat and and live. so the Israelites were giving twenty three point three percent or twenty five point three percent if they wanted to turn it into money each year for the purposes of God and it went to a variety of different purposes, ten to twelve percent for the priests, three point three percent for the poor and 10% for these dirty great big feasts in celebration and thanksgiving to Yahweh, their God and Saviour. So 25% of everyone's income was locked up in serving God, in celebrating God, in sharing the abundance of God, in caring for each other and doing all those things. And that was before they had a government system, a king, and any taxes. When the king came along, he instituted tax on top of that. And also that didn't include any of the animal sacrifices that you had to make for your sin offerings and guilt offerings, any thanksgiving offerings you wanted to give. And so it's very expensive to be an Israelite. Um, Now, it was a huge thing in Israel And, and it meant that your whole life revolved around God. Financially revolved around God for one way or another. And so, given it was such a huge thing in Israel, it seems really surprising that tithing is hardly even mentioned at all in the New Testament. And it's never encouraged. Tithing's mentioned four times. Once in Hebrews, chapter 7, to say, that's what Abraham did with Melchizedek. It's a historical reflection. And it's pointing towards Jesus and saying, Jesus is better than the Levitical priest because Abraham uh, gave to him, you know. So there's a different priesthood that's not a Levitical priesthood that's better, and you, sh- you know, that you should be following the one in the order of Melchizedek, who's the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace, who is Jesus, the true King. So that's a very odd reference to tithing. The other three mentions are in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, and they're all on the lips of Jesus. Uh, we read one of them in Matthew 23. Jesus absolutely hammers the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for their shallow and worthless religion. Uh, they keep up appearances and they appear to be really holy and to obey all of God's law, but but he says they've missed the whole point. Did you hear? Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. You don't just do the, the bunches of grapes and the herds you go along and he, say, he mentions mint, dill and cumin. I don't know if you know dill. Can you imagine tithing dill leaves? Tick, gods. Ting gods. You do give a tenth of all your spices even, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the important matters of the law, the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy and faithfulness. You should have practised the latter Without neglecting the former, you blind guides, you strain out the nap to swallow the camel. So you're not saying to the Pharisees and things you're doing the wrong thing by tithing. He's he's just saying you're not doing all these other important things about loving and caring for people and things. Sure, go on doing that, but you've got to do these other more important things as well. It's in the middle of one of the most vitriolic attacks Jesus ever made. He's saying you think God is impressed when you can tick off religious boxes and say, well, Ah, uh, yeah, I serve God because 10%. Tick. <laughs> but, but you neglect loving people and seeing the needs around you and doing anything about it. And he goes on and says, he says, you're full of greed and self-indulgence. Yeah, you know you look beautiful on the outside, like graves, but inside you're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. Whitewashed tombs. It's the same speech on another occasion in Luke chapter 11, so we won't read that. It says the same thing. And then the only other mention of tithing is in Luke chapter 18, which is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Pharisee's up there praying in the temple. He's a cool dude. Yeah, he uh, stood by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, those adulterers and robbers and evildoers. I'm not even like this tax collector over there. How, do you, how, how can I prove it to you, God? Because I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. I presume he did it by sheep and not money because then he would have had to give 12%. But anyway, um, God, I'm a good guy. And you're lucky, God, to have me on your side. Look what I do. I give a tenth of everything I've got. I'm awesome. You should know about a God. Uh, you deserve to have me. And we know he's the one that goes home Condemned. Not justified, not knowing God, held in contempt. And that's it. That's the sum total of mentions of tithing in the New Testament. So it's not really a good indicator as to whether we should or we shouldn't do it. It's not held up as the standard or anything like that. So what do we do? How much should we give to church then if, if that's not the answer, uh, what does giving look like under the New Covenant now as Christians? We're not Israelites. We're not a theocracy. We're not a, a national religion that everyone must participate in and pay the tax for. Uh, we, we don't have a system where people are born into the priesthood, although <laughs> there are certain families in the Sydney clergy who are all related to each other. But um, <laughs> uh, And nor do we do our church budget based on tithing, we don't go, there's many people, there's many workers, uh, there's many pensioners, and so uh, that means our budget should be. If we did do that, do you know how much our budget would be? $600,000. We would triple our budget if we budgeted on tithing. Um, Well, what do we do then? Well, as we've seen the last few weeks, it revolves around principles rather than rules. Principles, not rules. And that's, at the same time, a good thing, it's a great thing, Uh, and a scary thing. Okay? Because you want to know, am I being principled? It's a good thing because rules just about always turn people into Pharisees. If Jesus or Paul or Apostle John or Peter in one of their letters set out a percentage or you've got to give this much to your church a year, they made a ruling, you can be sure We'd have a whole people praying like the Pharisee. Yep, God, I'm awesome. Tick, I've done enough. I deserve your love. They would be earning, you know, explicitly their way to heaven, which you cannot do. But that, that, that is not the way to think. See, being a Christian, being saved by the Lord Jesus, understanding the gospel, that we were once enemies of God, unlovely, undeserving and yet in his love he saved us through Jesus. That is supposed to to transform us so that we delight in and we treasure, we value God. We value his kingdom and his purposes. And we start to find our joy in service. We start to seek and serve and love with everything that we've got. With our homes, Are you using a home to love others and serve God. Our, our uh, belongings, our, our energy, serve God and love people with our uh, cars or motorbikes in your case, uh, uh, in er- and in serving in every context that we find ourselves in, in our workplaces, in our homes, in our community, in our friendship groups, in the clubs we belong to, and the social activities we belong to that we might hold out the word of life by word and by example. The love of Jesus Christ our Lord. God calls us to be utterly transformed and to operate as men and women of principle and that is a scary, scary thing to do, isn't it? Because what's the limit on serving God with everything? (laughs) There is no limit. There's no amount of your life that you can withhold. It's all for God and his glory. And, and there is great joy to be found in that. Don't get me wrong. Because that's what we were made for. To, uh, it was what we were saved for. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To love glorifying and honouring him. Rejoicing in thanking our heavenly father. delighting in him and his ways and, and wanting to see done what he wants done. And that's got to drive us. But the Bible doesn't leave us clueless as to what that means in practical terms. So here are three ways that uh, that is all meant to pan out in terms of church and giving. Number one, we have a responsibility to pay for our teaching elders. We saw that three weeks ago uh, in 1 Timothy There's other responsibilities we have too, but that's one responsibility we have as Christians. Uh, one Timothy five seventeen. The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of a double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, "Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain," and the worker deserves his wages. You can find it in Galatians six. You can find it in one Corinthians nine and other places. If we, as a group, and I, I mean here we are, we are who is the church? We are the church, right? Not some total of the church. There are other churches, but. We are the church. If we as a church want people to be freed up from their normal jobs to come work for us in in various capacities, especially in leading and teaching, then we've got a duty to pay them. Now, I feel very self-conscious saying that as one of those who's getting paid, <laughs> and yet I'm very grateful for it, right? I, I count as a huge privilege uh, and as a huge responsibility to be doing this instead of uh, working as an engineer, which was my profession, my trade beforehand, okay? Uh, I left that job because people said, we'll pay you. <laughs> and and thank you for doing that. <laughs> and so if we as a church make a commitment to hire a certain number of people each year and we make that decision at the AGM each year, uh, then we have a duty to maintain it. uh We can decide we want to change the number of staff, that's fine, we can go down, we can go up. Uh, you know higher or low um, whatever we decide but but whatever we commit to it's a responsibility that we take on with each other and that's where our offer tree goes uh that that's what it's for uh, a minor portion goes on electricity and building maintenance and things like that but the vast majority of our budget something like ninety percent is for staff and if we wanted to take on a youth worker or a pastoral care worker or a a chaplain to industry, or you know, a woman's worker, or a church planner to go into one of these new suburbs, whatever it might be, we would have to be able to finance it. Uh, it'd be great to be able to do those things, and one day we might be able to. But it's a responsibility. To, I mean, if we if we did the six hundred thousand dollar budget, we'd certainly have you know a good number of those things, wouldn't we? Uh, but we take on this responsibility, and I was doing some figures just to give us a comparison. If we if we did think tithing was right. And as I've said, it, it, it's not what we call to, but if we did, we would finance our whole church budget as it stands with 29 workers, 29 average income workers, and our whole budget would be paid for. Now, we have a lot more than that. But so how much should you give? Well, at the very least, enough to pay the bills. And at the moment, we're not doing that. There's a piece of paper that gives the summary of the finances there at the moment, uh, we we committed to a two hundred and dollars budget for the year and we're first five months, $2,000 a month behind budget, so January to May, about that. <coughs> we we mentioned that it was a problem and we we're going to look at a deficit and uh, and the, the result of the appeal, <coughs> we're now $4,000 a month behind budget, so that worked really well, didn't it? <laughs> uh, and part of that is it's winter and so it's cold and there's less people around. Although what's interesting is several of the electronic givers, and I don't know who they are, I just I got reported to this by the treasurer, several electronic givers upped their giving. But overall our giving went down $2,000 a month. So something to think about. Uh, and so it looks like we'll have a shortfall of around $35,000 if we maintain that trend towards the end of the year. Uh, currently in the bank we have about six weeks safety net, which, um, uh, treasurers like to work on this, uh, that, uh, because it, you've got to have a certain amount in order to have, not have cash flow problems. So, uh, uh our treasurer sets it at eight, nine weeks is this, what we should maintain in the bank as a balance so that we can keep paying the bills regularly. We're down to six. Okay? So we're in a little bit of strife there. Uh, the net result of that is if we continue on the present trend, we will uh, empty the bank balance, but we'll pay our bills by the end of the year and we'll have to scale back next year to one or one part-time person. Uh, so that's the situation. But that's to give me right. We We take on responsibilities and then we've got to honour those responsibilities while ever we have them. And we can change that uh, one way or the other. That's fine. But there's more principles at work. See, where you've got a responsibility, including a financial responsibility, to care for one another as God's people. Uh, We're to bear one another's burdens, in the words of Galatians 6. Uh, and that includes financial ones at times. And so in the early ap- uh, chapters of Acts, you can see the church beautifully at work doing just that. Uh, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the wonder and signs that were performed by the apostles. All of the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And that included selling houses and stuff as, as the book of Acts goes on. In fact, what's our church called? St Barnabas. Okay, St Barnabas, what's he famous for? His name is, he's the son of encouragement. That's what his name means, Barnabas. Uh, he was traveling companion to Paul, the apostle, on missionary journeys around the world, so he's a missionary. Uh, first time he's mentioned, Acts chapter 4, he's the first Christian named as a sacrificial giver. Uh, he sold off an overseas investment property because he saw the hungry, people hungry at church. And he went, you know what? I'm gonna offload that and I'm going to give them the money. Now, organisationally, we don't care for each other that way through the offertory plate. How do we do it? Well, we make meals for each other, don't we? And when someone's elderly or sick or there's new parents, uh, we could be a whole lot more creative uh, doing home maintenance for those who are unable to do it themselves. I know uh, a couple of members of our church pay... Uh, on an infrequent basis, unemployed members of our congregation come do work cleaning and yard work so that they can feel like they're not getting a handout. Uh, that, you know, and so, but it's a way of giving. They don't need the help. It's a nice thing to do, to care for unemployed members of the congregation. Uh, and so good on you for those who do that. But the principles we have go even beyond that in terms of giving to church. See, we don't just want the gospel here to grow, we want the gospel to grow everywhere around the world. We want the gospel to go forth and we want to see new churches planted and people become Christians. Uh, we want to evangelise the world and not just in the new developments up the road, which no one else cares about, um, there's no gospel ministry planned in most of them, uh, or in the across the oceans in the deepest, darkest Peru, wherever the gospel is needed. And you can see the example of the church in Antioch praying to finance Paul and Barnabas for their missionary trips. They weren't you know, paying people to come work for them, they were paying people to leave them. (laughs) In 3 John 7 it's noted the missionaries who'd gone out were not supported by the pagans. No non-Christian paid for their work. It was the Christians who backed them and sent them to get them out there. The Philippians financially backed Paul later on. Now there's a couple of ways to give to gospel mission outside of our church. Uh, first of all, we do collect money for that, uh, but it's ad hoc and it's as you want it you know uh, It's got to be labeled. Uh, if you want to give to CMS, we will collect money for CMS and we'll send it off to support Amy Stevens in Argentina who's our link missionary. Uh, the easiest way to do that is with the offer tree envelopes. Uh, there's half that's like a little pocket for church giving and half that's labeled CMS. that goes to Amy. And if we overfunded her, it would go to some other missionary, right? We're not doing that, but anyway. Um, uh, and so that 100% of that goes to CMS. Uh, we also collect BCA boxes for gospel mission in poorer parts of Australia and twice a year. In uh, is it March and November, we collect their BCA box, people store up money, and 100% of that goes to fund uh, mission in rural Australia. But the way several members doing it, and particularly for bigger donations, the, the best thing is to go straight to the source and use your credit card or direct debit to give directly to those organisations, uh, like CMS. So you can see that giving to church is a complex issue and simply saying 10%, percent, that's the figure, doesn't give us the answer we seek. It might be a good guide when we start to weigh things up. Uh, and I've always thought uh, that I would aim to give 10% of my income uh, to whatever church I happened to be go to when I was working, and now I'm working here, and it was still the same. Uh, it's been a guide, it's gone up and down from from that, bounced around a bit, and circumstances will dictate. Uh, uh, you know, because you would be a modified tithe, I reckon. You know, uh, because a person earning $20,000 who's got to care for five people, 10% is too, that's a lot of money. Whereas a dual-income, no-kids couple who are earning $150,000, uh, 10% of that is peanuts, right? This is, what are you doing with the rest of it? So it's a, it's a, you can't, one size doesn't fit all. But it's a good starting point. It's not a command. It's a good way to think, you know, and where am I going to go from there? I want to conclude with the words of a Christian I've never heard of until Friday. A guy called Michael Morrison. He just said this fascinating thing. People who entrust their lives to Jesus Christ do not worry about whether tithing is commanded in the New Testament. People who are being transformed by Christ to be more like Christ are generous. They want to give as much as possible to support the gospel and to support the poor. Christians should give generously. But giving is a result of their relationship with God, not a way to earn it. Some people act as if Christ liberates us from the law so that we can keep more physical blessings for ourselves. That is false. Christ liberates us so we can be free to serve him more as loving children and not merely as slaves. He frees us so we can have faith instead of selfishness. And so when it comes to money, the real question is, is our heart in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we putting our money where our heart is? Yeah, we can tell where our heart is simply by seeing where do we put our money. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Father, we thank you for these hard, challenging words <laughs> and that you, you call us to give our whole lives to you. We pray that you might help us to wisely, courageously, generously do that in every aspect of our lives. Help us if we treasure money more than you to repent of that, to turn back to you. We pray for our church finances. Please, we pray that we'll be able to provide for what we've committed to, uh, not just this year but beyond. We pray that we might even be able to expand our reach into the community, that we might see the needs around us, that people are on the path to hell, and they need the gospel and that we might go ourselves uh, and that we might pay for others to come and help us to reach out, not just to Ingleburn but to these new developments to this world which is so in need of the Lord Jesus Christ. We beg of you, change our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, what, what questions, comments, thoughts, reactions? Well, that was it. Yeah. That was a yeah. Oh, man, I, the money talks. Are I mean, if no one's going to ask a question, I'll just... <laughs> hmm. oh. uh, so the commentator said uh, you know, Pentecostal church money just seems to leap out of their pockets and wallets and things. I think there's several reasons. One is uh, um, consistent teaching uh, confuses uh, that you will be blessed by God if you give more. And so Brian Houston's book, You Need More Money, big on that. Bring the bring the tithe in the storehouse and see if I will bless you. Okay, God will if you give. And so there's a sort of self-interest. There's part of it. There's guilt and manipulation. So uh, Malachi three um, is hammered. You know, you are robbing from God if you don't bring the full tithe in the storehouse. I mean, it's nonsense because the church is not the storehouse of God, right? Uh, it worked in a theocracy in national Israel. Uh, and they were stealing they were ripping off the priests now the priests themselves were sinning, and Malachi goes on to smash them for even worse things <laughs> uh, but anyway uh and so that there there's this the whole guilt about it uh, uh, youth alive nineteen ninety three entertainment center took the youth group for the first time thinking, oh this is a great thing to do uh turn up uh Pat Masidi, who was a hill who was a hill song preacher, I think he's been busted for things and kicked out, but uh, he, he got up there and he said, the money's coming, the buckets are coming around. If you've got 10 bucks in your pocket and you are going to spend that on yourself at McDonald's after the show tonight, you are stealing from God. You will take that money out of your pocket right now and you'll put it in when it comes past. I mean, that's so manipulative to an 18 year old, isn't it? I mean, that's, so I think there's a whole lot of really bad stuff there. So there's, there's this hope that I will be blessed. Uh, and there's this guilt and manipulation as well that I'm stealing. So it's no wonder money's rocketing out of pockets, although you look at the lifestyles and how much money people give. Um, very interesting uh, uh, series on YouTube uh, by... Oh, what's the fellow's name? Uh, Pat from Night Church, Pat um, Massingay, uh, posted on his wall, if you're a Facebook person, uh, it's a bit crude, um, but it's a, a, a guy decides he hates—he's he's not a Christian—but uh, he convinces a non-Pentecostal guy who hates Pentecostals to pose as a Pentecostal healer, trains him in hypnosis and manipulation, uh, and then they go on a tour in the U.S. and people are just throwing money at them, and he's and he's doing these healings and things just by psychological manipulation, and it's incredible. And then in his big show, the big concert, he says, I don't want your money and anyone who does is stealing from you. If they could really heal, they should just go and heal you. And walks off and he he runs out the door because he's so scared they're going to bash him. <laughs> um, but he, he just exposes the fraud. Hang right. Yeah. Oh, Sure. Absolutely. So, there's genuine people who just genuinely want the gospel to go forward and are convinced that that's the best place for it and some places that may be. Um, yeah. And I'm, yeah, give because you want the gospel to go forward and you want to care for people and because you think you've got some responsibilities you've got to take care of and because you want to care for people around you. And the the giving is not just to the plate, it's to all sorts of things. Okay. Uh, yep. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Sure, yeah. Oh you yeah, you can get more. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. We saw that in Dave's budget the other day. Uh, yep. Yeah. Yep. That's right. Stop thinking of it as a religious rule that God's going to get you over. I, by always I think it's not a bad place to... Start. I mean, I'm just... I'll hold up Dave as an example because we all saw his budget. Right, 10.3% to church, uh, 0.3% to starlight, 0.2% was discretionary giving, I think, uh, and then another 7 or so percent in total to various gospel causes. That's 17.7%, I think, the sum total was. Uh, as, I mean, that's, that's, that's a lot of money going out, right? Uh, and they're not the richest people in the world. Uh, you should know because you pay them. <laughs> uh, you can know how much that is if you want to care. That's right. Uh, but beware the heart that says, cool, I'll keep more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> That's, and this is what Michael, was so powerful there, Michael Morrison. Some people act as if Christ liberates us from the law so we can keep more physical, but I don't have to give 10%. <laughs> yeah. No, it means we can love more uh, as loving children, not merely as slaves. I, I think it's very powerful and i and and I think we've got to start seeing our assets as ways we can bless others with I mean our homes we are very poor as Australians at sharing our lives and our homes with each other. It's our castle uh, the average Australian home has nine visitors a year, seven of whom are family. You have to have them <laughs> <laughs> right uh, and uh, I mean this is somewhere I mean we live right here, and this is partly my personality i just like people, right, and hanging out and social, sure. but the how, to Alison's dismay, is a parade ground of all the vagabonds of Ingleburn, yeah, <laughs> and you guys as well, <laughs> yeah. you can, you, but it's using everything to serve. Yeah, how can I bless others? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and you'll even get paid for that, I imagine. Huh? Okay. It's done Not in and I don't that That kind of thing's brilliant. I mean, but just start by having someone else from church around for dinner, right? I mean, that would be a good start. I mean, we want to build each other as a family and, and we want to include more and more people in that, right? Uh, and so, and you might not be social. Maybe your home's not the thing. Okay, can you offer a lift to someone? Alison McNeil, just, she has been without a licence now for six months. She's not been to church for six months. She could come, but someone needs to go pick her up for 10 o'clock church. She's an 8 o'clock lady who can't make 8 o'clock church anymore. So no one knows about her. She's kind of lost. Um, they, you know, someone wants to go and do a lift every week up to Denham Court and back. You know, They're just practical things like that. They're easy ways to start caring for each other. But we have got bills as well as a church, and that's what the offertory is for. And so meeting our financial obligations. I mean, I, I know. I mean, I'm a little bit well. I'm a little bit afraid of our present circumstances. You know, we can't end the year with no money in the bank and have two staff next year, right? We just can't do it. Uh, well, we could have one and a half maybe. Uh, I, I don't want the blouses to leave, right? I love the blouses. I think they do fantastic work. And I want to say, they're well worth backing with your gospel dollar. But I don't want our church to just be in a maintaining pattern either. I, I think there's so much more we could do. If we did think in terms of tithing, I mean, as I said, $600,000 budget. And I said that 8 o'clock and everyone went, Really? Would it work like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it would. <laughs> uh, and I, I'm not saying we must do that or should do that. I just, it's just an interesting exercise. To think, wow, if we, what could we do? Um, and we can do lots. Uh, but you got to weigh it up. It's wisdom and it's generosity and it's responsibility. All those three things, very excellent. Three. If you missed the last three weeks, get the sermons online. Dave can make you an audio CD if you need to. Um. Hmm. Oh, um, it depends. So uh, it depends on... It costs more to have Dave than it does me for our church because the church owns the house. So no-one's paying rent. I live Uh, rent-free. And so... Seventy, Val well, seven, around ninety for ninety thousand dollars a year for David, and around no, there's where, so so there's there's what he's paid, and then there's what it costs to have him, and they're different things. So I, I, uh, my salary is around fifty thousand, fifty-five thousand, something like that. Uh, and then I have an allowance on top of that, and I get free accommodation. Uh, so it's probably a hundred thousand dollar package, but it's it's fifty, I don't know, it's forty seven thousand dollars in hand or something like that. <laughs> it's, it's complicated. Dave, we rent a house for. We're trying to build up a deposit for a. Mrs. is the Mrs. house. We got very. Someone gave us twenty grand early in the year. To go into that fund, house prices are just shot through the roof. So it'll be years before, I mean, it's, thank you, whoever that was. <laughs> uh, and if you want to give to that, that's fine. I'd rather save his job than have the house that he can't live in. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, that's for a more college graduate who's doing an assistant minister's role. It's cheaper to have youth workers and other things and yeah. Every, think every minute to $100,000 in the budget. That's But it's very hard. a Yeah. One. Yeah. Very It's yeah. I'm not saying he's he's not getting two hundred yeah it costs us hundred thousand dollars because you've got to pay insurance you know, for um workers and you got to and superannuation and there's all these hidden costs around it as well, so yeah, but granted we're on a pretty pretty good package right. Yeah. If I succeeded, <laughs> I dropped a pallet of beer, two and a half thousand bottles of beer off the end of the conveyor when I was working. <laughs> I wasn't carrying it. When <laughs> it was my program. <laughs> Can't do that too many times. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, And I thought, that, I mean, I did the $600,000 just, and I did it by going through, okay, who's our regulars of church, And I, and I'm, I just went down and just did sort of proportions. Okay, so we have uh, whatever it was, 60 people in full-time occupation. We have another 30 or 40 in part-time occupation. Then we got 100 pensioners and and students, uh, or something like that. So that's the adult population of our church on it, the regulars. I mean, I didn't go through the people who turn up once a year and uh, and all those kind of things. So, but that's and I just did it approximately just to work out what, what, what would it look like? Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I was staggered. <laughs> uh, cause, and it's really interesting because often the poorer earners who are giving more. Uh, Fascinating across the Sydney diocese, Anglican churches, uh, the average giving per head does not change depending on the suburb. All right, And you have some dollars given per head across the diocese, something like $1,300 per adult per year. Uh, but there are some stinking rich churches. I mean, people in churches. I used to work at Linfield. There was the CEO of Woolworths and people like that, high-power QCs and things, same giving as Ingleburn per head. Right, uh, that's intriguing and sad. Uh, there are some church. I mean, that's that's generalisation. There are some churches that do make really good contributions to poorer churches and things like that. So Eaglevale has been supported by St Thomas's North Sydney for some years, and um, oh no, so St Andrew's Roseville, uh, Hoxton Park is supported by, in part, St Thomas's North Sydney. Well, in terms of principles, exactly the same. There's no difference for a Christian. Everyone should be responsible, meet their responsibilities, work out where they are and meet them, generous, and wise. You've got to work all that together. Okay? And we've outlined the areas of responsibility that God calls us to, uh, and the same things we looked at today. We've got to care for each other, and we've got to, uh, I think, uh, in the hot tips the last few weeks, I think there's been some really interesting things that have become evident that we do not teach our kids to live the way that we do. We give, everything's handed on a platter. Okay? And so, Kid goes up is expecting to look into their four bedroom, brand new house, you know, when they're twenty-three or whatever, straight out of uni. Did you do that? I I know the ten pound palms, like some of our ten o'clock congregation, came out here, were sponsored by someone in Australia for a year or two, and, and they had a strange family living with them. So uh during that time they saved up enough to buy a piece of land. At which they built a shack, and they lived in that the second year. While they built the little house, the two-bedroom house, uh, and it took them years to get started. We don't, we don't teach our kids that the million-dollar houses. Okay, all right, that's expensive, but we're not teaching people modesty uh, and God's ways and things. Uh, there was a question at night church last. Was it last week? Astonishing. Uh, someone was staggered by the sermon on wisdom, of all things. I mean, I, I thought the one on generosity was way harder two weeks ago, but anyway, uh, wisdom saying hold back a bit. <laughs> um, uh, that Astonishing. Nightshare, someone asked the question, they're just staggered. They said, isn't it our responsibility to buy our children a house? And Dave just went, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. that." If that is your, if you have the means to do that, bully for you. (laughs) Uh, But don't be seduced into thinking that that is a necessity that your child needs from you. Um, If you if you are in a a position that's a good thing, a nice thing, but very generous, right? But you're going to do that at the cost of your responsibilities and true generosity and gospel purposes. Um, and, 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 you got, that's why it's these three principles interacting with each other to make all these decisions. And it's, it's challenging. It's challenging in every age. It's really challenging when the whole ethos and atmosphere is the worship of material things and experience. I think experience spending has become huge for the 20 year olds and 25 year olds, uh, and for the retirees at that point. You know, cruises, three cruises a year. Uh, I mean, your working life, you have, you know, four weeks of holidays. And most workers didn't do that in the past. Now we're going on very expensive holidays. Uh, so we're entertaining. And it's not wrong to do that. We're meant to enjoy the things that God's given us, but there's a, there's got to be modesty in it. And is it glorifying God? That's the question we've always got to be asking of ourselves. Um, Yeah. And we don't need these huge houses. We want them. Just, you know, rattling around. It's because we've taught them not to play games in the park with the cricket bats. You know, anyway, still keep going on. Uh, That's a good question. That'd be much more like the second tithe, wouldn't it, of... uh, you know, and I think we should save money up for doing things like that because that's a really great way we can bless each other as, you know, you you coming to a thing is a great thing for everyone else on a house party or a, you know, Thanksgiving feast or whatever. Uh, yeah, and so we've got to be reserving money, I guess, for that. Um, does it fit into any of those three categories? Is it a responsibility that we have to pay the elders? No. Is it a way of yeah, being generous to those in need in our community. No. Is it uh, financing the gospel mission overseas? No. Uh, so I guess there's a fourth thing. <laughs> just, but it's, it's, it's a wise, good thing in order to honour and serve God. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not really, in terms of the New Testament, uh, a big issue that's, well, I just can't think it's raised at all as, a, as a something that should be in your principal budget. But I think that would be a great thing to be budgeting for and I know when we did have a house party last year that we announced it the year before... Uh, well, I'm losing... Tr- playing one for next year, but when we had it, we announced it almost a year beforehand because we knew it would take a while for some families to save the 500 bucks or so or whatever it was to go away for the weekend with kids. That's an expensive thing to do. Good thing to do, but it's not a necessity. It's a, But it's a really great way to encourage yourself to be blessed and... So, yeah, I'd, I'd put that in the line. And, and conferences and things, they're good opportunities, which we can do because we're really rich, you know. If you're a you know, Christian over in Pakistan scraping and living together, you're not going to be going off to CMS conferences and, you know, having basically a fun holiday with a bit of teaching. <laughs> but great thing if you're able to do it. But don't become a conference junkie either uh, because that can be just as selfish as well. But, yeah, good question. Man, this is easy. Yeah. Our question is: uh, When we make a commitment to give, should we give blindly, not knowing where it goes, or should we take an interest in what's what's being done with the money? I guess Uh, absolutely take an interest. Because we're not just talking about supporting things. It's easy to throw a few dollars at the door knocker. You know, he says, give money to Teen Ranch or whatever the cause is. Uh, To Teen Ranch, come knocking on it. (laughs) What's the the Teen Cancer thing? Canteen. There you go. That's what I was thinking of. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It's not really investing, but you don't really invest much money in that either. You just give them the loose, you know, whatever money you've got in your pocket. There you go. Uh, if you give them anything at all, uh, take an interest because you want to be praying for things. And it may be that you can volunteer with the organisation, I mean, especially with church. I mean, uh, be part of what's happening and, I mean... This is only one part of our lives that we've been talking about the last few weeks, but the principles are there for every part of our lives, for our time and our possessions and interests, and we should be praying for God's purposes and praying for the people that we're supporting and caring for. Uh, and when you pray for someone you're assisting, say you've got a, a neighbour and you can you can flick them some money, but it, when you're praying for them, you start going, oh, yeah, I better check up on them. How are they going? Do they need more? You know? Do, they, do I need to stop giving because they're better, or whatever the situation is? And so I can be wise and generous with that money. Andrew? Oh, the Salvation Army, the Red Shield yes. Appeal. Yes. Are you so? is the question: Is that a good thing to do? Yes. Is it so? The question is: Is it a good thing to give to the Red Shield Appeal? Yes. Oh, I think it's a f- fine thing to give money to to caring for people. That's a nice, good, generous thing to do. Is it the best thing you could do with your money? I don't know. You have to weigh that up. I mean, that's that's where when you do what Steve suggested, take an interest and find out where does the Red Shield money appeal money go. You know, I mean, I don't know that it seems like a good thing, uh, but if you take an interest, you can find that out and you can work out if there's a better organisation or if that is the best and, and and do the best things you can with your money. Yep. Man, getting off very lightly. Which one? Oh, uh,. Was there a question about that this morning? Oh, yeah, so there was a no, no. Was a question this morning about just the expense of houses. Everything's become so expensive. The average house price has hit a million dollars in Sydney. There you go. Uh, good on you. Um, I'll never own one, so what, what do I care? Uh, um, uh, so shouldn't we be looking after ourselves, I guess, was the question. And, yeah, it's just unrealistic to even think about these kind of percentages for anything else. Uh, well, no, no, it's not unrealistic at all. Be modest uh, in everything you do. Uh, you're going to be making these important decisions, and you should be thinking, well, here's the principles I've got to operate by uh, generosity, responsibility, and wisdom. What is that going to mean in terms of my house? Uh, two people this morning who are about to build houses came and told me they were going to build a smaller house as a result. Of this morning's sermon, uh, like I wasn't anticipating that. It was just, um, yeah, they th- suddenly thought we don't need what we were planning. Uh, the other thing is, we are, as we said the last few weeks, we've got this lifestyle creep and. Uh, Teenagers today are expecting to have everything at 22 that their parents have provided for them when it's never been that way in the past. Uh, The £10 POMS came out to Australia. They paid £10 to get on the ship and they had nothing in their pocket and they were sponsored by someone who said that they would look after them when they got here. So they turned up in Australia not knowing anyone except there was this mysterious sponsor. Uh, They would live with that person for a year Uh, during which time they would scrimp and save and then buy a little parcel of land Uh, and then uh, they would put a tent there while they built a shack and then they would live in that shack for a year while they built a little tiny house. And so most of the weird rabbit warren houses on the North Shore are like that because they all just got extended and extended and they all did it themselves uh, back in the day and yet we're just expecting that we will at 22 have all of the stuff and we'll be living a brand new house and you know, paying off our million-dollar mortgage, uh, and that's a ridiculous slavery that we're putting ourselves into, and it means that we can't even think properly about the things we should be thinking about—about about God and His ways and His purposes and His plans. And so, I think there's a modesty in all of it that we've got to, and a reality that we've got to get to grips with. Okay, Jeremy's real question. Uh, ha- so why what principle do you choose where to live? Should it be based on where you want to do gospel ministry rather than that you really like the suburb? Is that the question? Uh, yep, I think that's right. <laughs> uh, uh, most people uh, get out of uni or school and they think, uh, what job, I get? And you know, I'm going to get the best paid job, and then I'm going to live as close as I can to that work. Uh, and I want to buy the best place that I can afford. And then I'll go to church wherever might happen to be convenient around that. And I think that's completely backwards. The way we should be thinking. We should be thinking, where am I going to serve? You know, where's the church family I want to be part of? Where am I going to go and work in the gospel field or whatever it's going to be? How can I be committed to God in His ways? And so. How do I get to live there? I've got to find a place suitable and I've got to get a job in order to pay for that <laughs> so I can be part of things there. And there's a family in this very congregation who made just that decision just this year, uh, who are part of us because they went, you know, we're an area of Sydney that needs more help and so they moved down this way uh, and then got jobs after they moved. So, good idea. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> All right. Uh, the question, just for the tape, is uh, when we're choosing our career path, should we should we choose something that we can comfortably do? I take it you mean that we're not become slaves to, it, it's ours, rather than things that we're going to have to put in 110 10% and that's going to cause other things to suffer. Yeah, I think that's probably wise. Um, and there's there's a variety of factors, though. There's what you're good at. There's what the careers advisor tells you, you have know, got to pursue your passion. That's a dumb, dumb piece of advice because uh, you'll learn to hate it. <laughs> you'll kill your passion. Um, uh, and you may not be a career in it. You may not be able to wisely earn money to pay for the things you're responsible for and your family and so on. Um, uh, yeah, work can dominate your life if you let it. It's going to take up a lot of hours of your life anyway uh, and... That's not to be the case, and I think whatever field you end up, you want to do the best you can to say to the boss, uh, "I've got, I, I want to go to church, and I want to, and I'm, I'm occupied whatever night my Bible study is, and here's the ministry I do, and, and put those things in place. Uh, and if that's going to impact your pay packet, well, so be it. Take a different job. I know one person in our congregation who uh, took a demotion because of the stress and the strain, the hours of being a a manager were, and so went back to being on the tools. Uh, And I think that was a good, wise decision. Less money, less, you know, things they could do with that, but I think they're really good for their family life and sanity, Uh, uh, yeah, yep, yep. At the same time, you could, you know, be a... What's a job that's not gonna pay you anything and uh, you know, and you're gonna to struggle to survive and be a burden on people, you wanna be realistic about it as well. I'll add that on. All right. The police have arrived. Welcome. <laughs> I think I'm under arrest. <laughs> We're gonna move on to praying. Mitch.